Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's issues here that's happening on country. If we're talking around long-range reconnaissance surveillance, we need to be aware of it. And and again, where do mob go to to complain? Because the system doesn't recognise them. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Danielle Island-Piper. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I offer my respects to Elders past and present. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Eileen Hall of the Australian Army. She is at the headquarters of the Regional Force Surveillance Group. Welcome, Eileen. Yeah, let us start. Uh, firstly, before we start, I just would like to acknowledge uh, uh, the traditional owners on whose country we're meeting on. Uh, so because I'm not traditional owner for this country, um, I'd like to pay my respects for um, uh, Nambri and Nullawal peoples on whose country we meet. Part of culture safety for me is around we'll listen re- with respect, speak with respect. Um, our actions will be respectful, but most importantly, we'll do no harm while we're on their country. And, and, and I'm super excited to be here, yes. Me too. It's a real privilege to be on, on Ngunnawal land for sure. Mm. Oldest continuous living culture in the world. We're, we're, we're very lucky to yeah. be here in the in country, yeah. So today, um, Eileen, we were going to have a yarn about what security means, the importance of relationships and what leadership looks like. But to the extent that you're comfortable, would you mind sharing a little bit of your story with us? From what I've, the little I've heard, it's an extraordinary story. Yo, um, so I was a child born to uh, an Aboriginal woman from Cape York uh, and my father was an Irish immigrant. So I'm, for those listeners, I'm 51 years of age. So um, technically I was born under the Act, the Aboriginal, oh, well, the Aboriginal Act, six months before I was born. So anyone born to an Aboriginal mother is actually was under the Act as, as considered as a ward of the state. So that's my that's how I started life. So my mother grew up um, in uh, Hopevale Mission, which is East Cape York. Uh, met my father while she was nursing. You know, so I always had to walk between two worlds. Mm. Um, my first job ever, I dropped out of uni. I was studying at UWA to look after my my baby sister and my mum. My stepfather passed away suddenly. Um, and my first job ever was a two-day CDEP Aboriginal health worker. So I worked for the doll. That was one of the recognised activities back in community. 20-odd years later, I became CEO for uh, Woodja Aboriginal Shire Council. And, uh, and then that, that, that's where my journey with Army started in 2017. Um, we had 51st Battalion come through community and didn't really know that we already, the community actually had a connection with, with Defence Force. Uh, and then after my contract with council finished, I um, became full-time with the army and then I did a stint for 12 months during peak period for COVID down in uh, Jarvis Bay Territory as director of operations there. And and, and from my um, cheeky little Google online, I understand that you're one of, if not the most senior-ranking Indigenous officer in the in the armed forces, one of those. Is that right? For Yeah, especially within Army, for, for especially in women and in particular as well, yeah. like for, for Indigenous, yeah. So it's, it's first of trade, I'm first of trade, um, and the Regional Force Surveillance Group uh, uh, has three Regional Force Surveillance Units, 51st Battalion, North Force, which also covers Northern Territory, Kimberley Squadron and Pilbara Regiment. So it's 52% of Australia's landmass we cover. Mm. And you're now also um, the recipient of one of our um, National Security College scholarships, I'm really pleased to say, and so we're, we're looking forward to learning more from you as you 
um, undertake the masters here. So thanks for sharing some of that, Eileen. Um, I'm really interested in your thoughts on what security means. We're having, you know, it's often in the media now what security means. It's more than bombs and guns and national security mm. is very much on the national agenda. What does it mean to you, do you think, in your work? So because I was, I am first of trade, one of the things that Army needed to understand was that um, just like when we deploy overseas, we have specialist advisors that help us to navigate, you know, the terrain. Um, and also part of that is understanding is the relationship piece, particularly when we're working cross-culturally. So when we look at our area of operations within the group, we have over 250 recognised language groups wow. and traditional owner mm. groups. So it's nations within our nation. So when we're talking relationship, especially around security, because ours is long-range reconnaissance uh, within the domestic space, we do also um, border protection with Operation Resolute. We really need to know and understand how relationships play out, particularly around access to country. And and also part of our mandate uh, is also around deliberate Indigenous engagement and development. So what does that mean in a tangible sense? A lot of our First Nation mob, and I can't say for all country, but definitely for for, for those that I grew up with, um, we need to have pe- put people into, when they come to do business on country, into to categories. So either you family or you stranger or you unknown. Some of our traditional owner groups don't have a word for friend. You either family or you stranger. And so when we look at some of the previous agencies or government you know, policies that came out, some mob are automatically in the stranger box. What that means is that they can't do business, or if they're if you're unknown, they won't they won't do business. So you'll hear a lot of um, some stories saying, "Ah, oh, I went to organise meeting on community, and none of them mob turned up." Well, FYI, it's because they couldn't place you in in that space. So it's really understanding that, and then also within a in a defense point of view and especially I'm very cognizant in my role it's like connecting mobs so my gift is connection I I'm very good at connecting and also understanding you know so that's yeah and so um you mentioned there the importance of relationships and I guess there's both a moral and a practical side to that I'm reminded of some work that I've read about how colonialism is in itself a national security risk because we've lost so much knowledge about the land that we're seeking to protect in some ways and and that we have a lot to learn from First Nations peoples around that. Do you find that that comes up in your work at all in terms of sort of educating about country or is it really more just about sort of respect and relationships and acknowledging what's happening there in the First First Peoples? We always talk about capability. So if you're talking about, hey, I need to, to, to build capability within my companies or within, you know, in our, in, in, in the area I'm in, particularly around long range reconnaissance and surveillance, you need to have robust understanding, but frank and fearless opportunities to talk about, you know, what, what it is that you want to do. When we look at the census data, one in five Australian families has a defence relationship, whether it's immediate or, you know, historical. When you look at a lot of our First Nation communities, particularly in the north and also in some of, like even, say, for example, down here in the Jarvis Bay, you know, Rec Bay Aboriginal community, that's one in two. Wow. It's it's very, very close. But yet we seem to have this misnomer around, hey, you know, mob hate defence and, you know, historically there's reasons for that. But they also have a very close relationship. So the challenge for us then is how do we create that that space for those kind of conversations to take place? How do we reconnect people around respectful relationships? A lot of people want to do good intentions and have good intentions, but sometimes they trip over in terms of how do they apply it. When we look at our systems, our systems sometimes are to blame for that. Mm. So, you know, second level of discrimination is exclusion. How do we exclude people? Sometimes it's the forms we use. Sometimes it's the buildings we use. Sometimes it's the actual system, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that's where culture safety comes into play. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What is cultural safety? Culture safety, it's 
it's not a new term. It's been around for a while. So it was first coined in New Zealand in Aotearoa with uh, Māori midwives in the late 80s, early 90s. They were very concerned, and so to the male listeners, um, about Māori women, um, mothers accessing, you know, mid- midwives, healthcare, um, not feeling in, in control of, of having safe for their own bodies. And so then now it's sort of morphed into more around, well, hey, we need culturally safe spaces for First Nation people to access, um, you know, and that and it's it's more than awareness. Cultural awareness is, hey, there is a difference here, and then you've got to go up. Cultural sensitivities is, okay, let's talk about the systemic issues here. Cultural safety is same like we talk use the word partnerships very freely now, it also has a fiduciary obligation. So I recognise we have equal say, equal power base here. Same, same for culture safety. We have to make those spaces happen. Mm. And so do you think this notion of cultural safety, as you've described it, is helpful to Australia in managing um, or improving its regional relationships? So we know that there's been an increased interest of, of late in connecting with our neighbours in the Pacific. Um, do you think we've got anything to learn from cultural safety principles in that sense? And, and and what do you think about our Pacific relationships and how Australia is doing with those? We already have family ties, you know. A lot of our communities, say if we talk about, you know, if we're talking Melanesian connection within the Torres Strait, we've also got, you know, um, during the sugarcane period, you know, the late 1800s to early 1940s, you had 95,000 of mob come across, you know, and that's where we get the term South Sea Islanders. You know, like it's that connection, it's there. You know, up the road we've got our, our Wontok families, you know. When we look in the, you know, Makassar trade, 400 years of trade there, Cameliers, you know, the Afghanistan sort of connection, it, those connections are there. It's it's just that we've never sort of really unpacked those and then how we use those already established relationships and recognition. Again, same like how, you know, First Nation mob, are you family, are you friend, are you stranger, are you unknown? We're not unknown in the space. We've just not woken up to understanding how they actually work. So, you know, when we're talking about um, if we're giving foreign aid, for example, to Pacific Island nations, and I can't talk for Pacific Island, but I can talk for it within my own space, sometimes we've got that really old antiquated version of donor-recipient model. Capacity partnering is different. I fully recognise that you, sister, have, have skills and knowledge that I don't have but would love to understand and and, and utilise. And vice versa, Eileen. <laughs> and vice versa, exactly, exactly, you know. So... I think we're in that trend, the interesting space now where we're going from donor-recipient, you know, we're saying we're family. Well, what does family actually mean? It's actually acknowledging, hey, we both have a role to play here. Mm. Yeah. We both have skills and knowledge, yeah. And and I've heard you talk before about the idea of unfinished business. Is there unfinished business in our relations in the Pacific, do you think? Um, uh, uh, there's elements there, uh, you know, and it was really interesting. There was an article I read and uh, it was actually in the Solomon Islands. It came out of the Solomon Islands and it was just a one-off comment where they said, oh, yes, the, uh, you know, meaning Americans and, and um, you know, Allied forces, yes, they, they came here and then, you know, they left all their, you know, plane and, you know, rubbish and empty drum and they went and, now, of course, big big interest there. <laughs> they've come back. But it's funny how they've cottoned onto that because that leads to an interesting thing around country and, and how we and, and First Nation people view country. You know, so like farmers will say, hey, I've got rights here for this land because I'm, I'm working the land, whereas a lot of First Nation people say, hey, I've got obligation for country. Mm. And that doesn't just affect me or my family, it affects my whole bloodline. So it's that generational approach. Yeah. Mm. So my grandmothers, you know, Nanny Kathleen and, and, and Nanny Mari and those always talk about, well, we have a shared history now, whether we like it or not, it's shared history. So, you know, Jungrajikul, we all stand strong together and um, part of that standing strong together is also acknowledging that I have to learn them the right way, they have to learn me, you know, mm. yeah, same, same. Yeah. It's a mutual obligation. Yeah. Mm. I was really interested in what you said before about how 
Um, one might assume um, not a close relationship between defence and First Nations people, but as you've pointed out, actually there's a very long um, relationship and, and lots of mob have connections with defence. Mm. What's it like for you walking between those two worlds in your in your role with the army and then your role with local peoples? You have to start from self. So what's my um, what's my role going to be? And and um, you know sometimes I can't do like a direct yarn, you know, because cultural there's cultural obligation. So if, if I'm using like my in laws country. I wait respectfully and then do that connection piece. And I might not be the, and this is where leadership comes into play, I might not be the right person to lead that. Part of leading is also leading from within, but I acknowledge there's other, you know, skills and talents that that can. So when we're talking about relationships and particularly what's been really interesting, so if you look, for example, like in the Northern Territory, a lot of the elected members, a lot of them are either ex-Norforce people, you know, or their, you know, grandfathers or uncles have served. So they've come through as reservist with the RFSL or, or through the Nakaroos, you know, that, that long history or the Northern Surve- uh, Northern Regional Surveillance Unit, the 80-year anniversary was last year. Oh, really? I don't know about yeah. that, actually. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. Um, today on in the Torres Strait is the Torres Strait Light Infantry, really? you know, celebration. So, you know, you had 80 years. 80 yeah, years. So, so you've got, mm. um, you know, 800 Torres Strait Islander, you know, um, you know, mob that had served, but you also had mob from mainland as well, so from like Arakoon, Lockhart River, Cowell Creek, which, you know, and, and that NPA area, they all served as well. Um, so it's an interesting history there. Mm. And so that's that generational link and we call it security song line. You know, there's that, that link there. I think I've heard you talk before you were speaking at our uh, Women in National Security session yesterday and you were talking about an airplane dance. Oh, Are you happy to talk yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, sometimes I'm asked to give presentations and with the Marine, uh, US Marine rotation, uh, they normally have a session there where they talk about cultural awareness. And so I'm thinking, oh, by golly, how am I going to make that link, you know, to, to get them to understand? And so I thought, all right. So connection is a big thing for me. And so I, I mentioned the story, well, you mob already are linked in songline-wise and story-wise um, and so, so even language-wise. And so I used the story. There was a plane crash, U.S. plane crash uh, in December 1942. There were four people, four pilots on that plane. Uh, one And the Garawa and Yanyua mob, particularly the Yanyua mob, that's Borolula, that area, they sung, you know, for the survivors. They went out, looked, and and but also sung, you know. And so, there was only one survivor, uh, Staff Sergeant Gaston G A S T O N. Um, he walked three hundred miles. Uh, that was over one hundred and forty days. They found him in May nineteen forty three. So this year, twenty twenty three. Uh, reconciliation week is, you know, May 27 to June 3rd. Uh, I want to reconnect the Marines and, and American, you know, servicemen and so, hey, you're already in that song line. So Garawa and, well, mainly the Yanua mob, especially the Boralula mob, they did a, uh, created uh, the aeroplane dance. Um, I think it's called uh, Ka Waiwa Waiwa Ma, um, you know, and it sounds similar to like the plane, aeroplane thing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And so even if you're not blood-related, they will still connect you in some way. Mm. Um, and I think that's the beauty of First Nation, um, you know, song lines, uh, dreaming tracks, um, you know, those sort of connections because once you're in there, you're a part of it. And so that also means you have obligations as well and part of that is, you know, looking after country. Well, what does looking after country mean? What does relationships have to do with country? Everything for us, you know. Mm. And so if we look at the New Zealand sort of um, viewpoint, even how, what they put importance on. So, you know, New Zealand recently or in the last few years have recognised water as its own entity. And so when we do introductions, you know, and especially for any, um, you know, Māori uh, mob, you know, Aotearoa mob listening in, um it's that connection to water. 
water holds our history. Water connects both, you know, it, you know, freshwater dreaming and saltwater dreaming. Mm. It connects all of us. And so with our history being held in water, mm. you know, what does that mean when we're talking like with mining and, and all those kind of things? And yeah. Security. security. Yeah. So yeah. water security, mm. food security. You know, now we're talking about energy security, you know, because of issues with water, especially in desert country like in the US at the moment, means their hydro stuff can't work. Well, hello, (laughs) let's talk about, you know, what does that mean? It means also loss of culture and it can do impact on culture. Mm. And understanding our obligations to country actually has security implications because it's about keeping or mob safe, right? Mm. Sometimes I think um, for lots of reasons that Australian struggle or Australia struggles to articulate an identity and, and, and my personal view that's partly because of our history of colonisation and sort of mm. making peace with that and, and truth-telling around that. But I was really interested then in picking up what you said about song lines and how, mm. you know, even if we're all from all over the place, you can... It, I understood you to say that we can create song lines together. And are we still creating song lines together? What's been beautiful in the last few years is that reconnection piece. And so if you're adopted or or part of a network here, you can link across. And so when I do the the marine rotation yarn, I'll give an example of um, you know, um like we talk about how does skin work, how does moiety work. And so if your skin name is here, then how that changes as you go up Northern Territory, how you go west side, east side, how do you then how does that link into Northern Ter- uh, Queensland and, and Western Australia? So it's that reconnection piece. Same like down here, you, you know, even though we're Nullawal country and 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 um and Nambri country they hold a lot of our business here because business gets discussed here that impacts the whole of country and also our relationships internationally. So that's a huge obligation on, on just those traditional owners here. They, they have they, to hold that story. They have yeah. to hold that story. Mm. And so when we talk about, you know, other countries and that, there are some things that I won't discuss mm. because that's not my story to tell. tell. Yeah. But yet from a, if I'm an intelligence officer, hey, I need you to tell me the story. <laughs> You know, and so there, there might be a bit of culture clash, <laughs> but it's also understanding that there's a time and place. So, like in English, when we say, you know, how are you, we're actually asking, where are you? Are you here now in this time, this place, this space? Yeah, which mm. is an interesting dynamic. Because and it's a different question yes, than what we might understand it, it to be. be. Yeah. yeah. And so, when we're talking about negotiations, and it's also understanding how trauma, so picking up again on that colonization piece, how does trauma then interplay when we're doing negotiations or, you know, what they call key leadership engagement on country? Well, you know, if I'm in that survival mode, uh, you know, we literature tells us you lose 18 IQ points straight up. So that ability to be able to think through coherently around, you know, hey, we're talking business will not be there because I haven't gotten to rest and relax space. I haven't got that in my toolkit. And so when we have First Nation, you know, soldiers coming in from community for training, we really need to understand how that by-play plays out, but also understanding that there's another um, kinship system in play as well. So it's giving them that culturally safe space. And then around the ability to fail, fail safely, so in a Western way, we really promote, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, um, God bless him, um, and and others around, you know, to be entrepreneurial and a good business person. Take risks. Take risks. Fall over and get back up again. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fa- fail, fail, plenty yeah. time, you know. Mm. But if you're in that survival mode, even just falling over once is a big trauma thing because you've been conditioned to not think nice things about yourself. Mm. And so when our mob fall over... It's a- a pretty heavy context. Yeah. yeah. And so they'll stay down. And so part of the journey for us is, again, creating culturally safe spaces for them to fail safely, but at the same time knowing that there are people there to help them and work with them so that they can get back up again. Um, that also plays out in terms of when we introduce new concepts or new things. So if we're talking trainability, if I'm introducing a new training concept, hey, hey, I, I don't want to do this, you know, I can't, I'm, you know, or just I'll walk away. Yeah, so it's understanding that. But it also helps us when we go yarn with our other brothers and sisters overseas because they've also been exposed to trauma. And so, you know, trauma recognises trauma. Mm. You can then, you know, and so, that you know, 
Yeah, there's an opportunity here and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, the work I'm doing, um, you know, around language recognition is also understanding around health recognition, um, which then leads to justice. So we know where you live is an indicator of how long you live. If we then apply a justice lens to that or a national security lens, how, where you live also indicates, you know, what's your thing with justice going to be, you know. Mm-hmm. But your relationship with justice, how do you feel, feel about, about that? that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, to the extent that you can say or you feel comfortable saying, um, how is the military doing in terms of um, accommodating or um, having good relationships with its First Nation soldiers and stuff? Mm. So so for the listeners there, um, so the area that I work in, the space I work in, so 20% of uniformed Indigenous soldiers within Army come from within our group with oh, the, wow. across our three regional force surveillance units, um, which is huge. And so for us it's, you know, Indigenous engagement and development is deliberate and needs to be. But we also have a fourth arm, which is our Indigenous Development Wing. Um, we have a specialised training facility. We also have um, defence pathways. So, you know, there's a thousand and one ways to get rid of someone within defence. We need a thousand and one ways <laughs> to, for bring one, them in. to bring them in. Yeah. And so within the group, again, picking up on, you know, where you live, you know, d- can say how long you live. We um, within the group under Chapter Seven, Section Seven, we're able to commanding officers from within the three RFCs are able to do waivers, um, health, education, psychological, um, in criminality. Not or not all. So the thing for us is around. Well, if I'm going to do a waiver, what's my appetite for risk? And part of that risk appetite is understanding context you know, and understanding historical. So, you know, sometimes in some communities when big knuckle-up happens, which it does um, in some places, you know, sometimes local police will charge everybody, even if you're watching, you know, and then over a few years you develop, yeah. Or or we get some mob that are in jail at the moment for silly things like spur fines and everything like that, you know. Um, It's not helpful for anybody. Not helpful. And so when we go for security clearances, and that's the work we're talking to AGS for at the moment, Mm. is understanding, you know, not everyone will have identification either because there's not like a government agent that can do birth certificates on country, you know. And then culture way too, like when someone passes, you don't use that name, you know. Um, we've also got traditional adoption, um, you know, where, where, you know, now we've had, so Queensland government's adopted that in terms of traditional. So we're really trying in that space, mm. um, you know, and but again, it's around reconnecting. We've already got that history in inbound. I guess it's then how do we apply that in our day-to-day capability space and operational space and then mm. that strategic space. Yeah, just listening to you, it just occurred to me sometimes how, unintentionally blunt so many of our systems are for engaging with different arms of government Mm -hmm. and of course you know vetting is one of them that you know people smarter than me are looking at at the moment Mm. but it is an issue for diversity and inclusion Mm. um, for all the reasons you say there's this sort of blunt measure of someone who's reliable but it doesn't take any accounts to the different contexts people are living in and in a way we're depriving ourselves of Mm. you know really important knowledge and um and people as a result so i was sort of pleased to hear that there is some work starting to be done around yeah 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 yeah. and you know it it, will especially in the security space so you know they'll ask for you know the gold 100 points of gold id kind of stuff and and I'll give the example back home, you know, like, so can you provide a power bill and a phone bill or, you know, tenancy agreement or, you know, that kind of stuff. So a lot of mob overcrowding will move from house to house. You know, some won't live in a house, some will be out on outstation, you know what I mean? So can you prove your residency that you live there? Well, no. <laughs> um, and also uh, the other thing too around power bills, like a lot of our remote areas, I, I can't talk for urban centres, but they've got the prepaid power card, you know, $20, $50, $100. Um, you don't get a bill for that. You just pay it as you right. go, like pay go kind of stuff. So you can't necessarily show that evidence. No, yeah. no. And, um, yeah. and the phone will, you know, your prepaid mobile is $30, $50. You know, the cheap ones you can get from community store. Like, mm. Yeah, and a lot of mob don't have their own bank accounts either. And this was the other thing we were talking around financial um, inclusion. You know, so some some of the so in Queensland the councils there, like when I was CEO for council, we ran everything from womb to tomb stuff. We ran the childcare as well as you know women's thing and that sort of. Stuff. We also had to run the banking 
And, um, you know, one of the challenges for us was some mob will have the one account that everyone uses, which then becomes a risk then when you're talking around security vetting, you know, what's your bank account Mm, details? What are you buying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so and a lot of the vetters that, um, you know, we were talking with Ags Farm um, a few months ago and one of the things too was around educating the vetters themselves because when you've got, you know, hey, this person has so many different numbers. That's a, you know, that's that's a red flag for us. Your good way. Um, the family is huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's a red flag. They're from a big family. Yeah. They're and, gonna be and, mob. <laughs> and the store may not have a lot of mobiles coming in, and you know, certain, you know, and it also getting getting us a bit savvy too around recruitment. So sometimes when we when we recruit, you know, sometimes the timing isn't right. So if we're recruiting straight after wet season in our remote areas, food security is a big issue. So they're not going to be 100% healthy, um, you know, and so that's why the waivers are so important. So it's, yeah, it's, it's. but in saying that too, you can be living in Redfern, you could be living in La Perouse, you can, you know, yeah, same, same but different. And so our lens needs to be different and uh, well, not different. It's around understanding that cultural intelligence and, and literature shows us if we've got a workforce or a system that understands cultural intelligence, adaptive um, performance increases threefold. Yeah, right. So it makes good business sense, you know, but then if we pick up on cultural intelligence in terms of like narrative warfare, for example, and like picking up what you were saying around identity, it's that storytelling, you know, and then underneath the the ground is that, well, what is identity and, you know, what is Australia's identity? And so if we use specific lens, you know, for our Pacifica mob, you know, well, hey, it's like how do you weave that mat you know, who's in the canoe with you, you know, them kind of thing. Um, on country here, it's around, well, what have you got in your dilly bag? You know, what do you share? So if we eat from the same plate, I trust you. Mm. If I don't trust you, I won't eat with you. I might drink tea with you, good way, um, but I won't trust you. And so what does trust truly mean? What does, you know, yeah. I think um, when we were chatting yesterday, you made the observation that people are looking at Australia right now, mm. like our neighbours are looking at mm. us. What did you mean by that? If you're talking, and this is just me, Eileen Yarning, so if I'm a First Nation person and I'm currently doing business with any government agency, you know, any government entity, um, first thing I'll look back is, hey, where are you coming from? You know, are you coming from as, a, you know, you say that you you want to be big brother, you say you we're family, will show me how does family look after family. So you you coming from Australia, how are you looking after your family? Who who I have so for example a Pacifica mob, we got family ties there. If I'm talking, you know, um Indonesian mob, we got ties there, you know, Western New Longamata, you know, some of those mob with the red flag dance. That's straight that's straight recognition because they've had four hundred years, you know? So, you know, same like with when when um the Central Desert Mob, you know, sent painting over for the mosque shootings, you know, because they were grieving with family. They recognise, you know, with with the Camellia connection. So, so that's there, and again, they're all looking, and so we really have to be. Uh, what is our identity? It is many things. Mm. Yeah, we'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey ladies, ever thought about studying national security but talked yourself out of it? Well, I'm here to talk you back into it. This year, in partnership with the National Intelligence Community, we'll be offering several women the opportunity to complete the Master of National Security Policy fee-free. Our degree is the only one of its kind in Australia and tailored to you. Follow the link in the show notes for more information. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia.
So another um, another concept that's um, getting a bit of airtime at the moment is that of cultural loading. Would you be comfortable speaking to that for a bit? I'm glad you raised that. One of the things that comes up a lot is around, especially around welcome to country um, and and some other cultural requirements while you're on country as part of culture safety. So, for example, if I take you to country, sister, um, th- you know, and you misbehave, they won't growl you or get upset at you. They'll growl me because I had corporal, cultural obligation by learning you the right way and being that culture guide, you know. And so an example of what I had to do in council was that um, I had I'd created two positions, Nanny Mari and, and Aji Billy. They were my culture um, advisors. They represented the three traditional owning groups within Wujo Wujo, you know, um, Guku Nyungul, Guku Yalanji and uh, Jalanjiwara, which is sea country. So that, And the reason for that was then when agencies would come to town, I would deliberately get them to go to them first and then they would say, yes, you can come in or no. And that took into place like if there was any sorry business happening in community. But at the same time getting them to know like, yeah, I might be CEO and then we might have elected members but they're traditional owners they have and elders, they have boss for country. Cultural loading then when we look at like government agencies or, or, or community organisations like Lentris and stuff like that, they'll suddenly get visits from mob, you know, Canberra, Brisbane, wherever, hey, we want to welcome to country or, or other stuff. So I'm doing my own job and now all of a sudden I've got to do this culture job on top of it. And so there's been no like formal recognition of that in some spaces and places. It's raised itself in New Zealand or Aotearoa. It's definitely raised itself here and, and it's also with their other First Nation mob, you know, in other countries. So how do you play that um, and how do you recognise that when your job might be an, an admin officer who just happens to be a traditional owner? Oh, by the way, can you do Welcome to Country? Well, hang on, this you need to formally recognise that. Yes, because it's a skill and um, a knowledge source mm. that you in particular have as a person. It's not yeah. just something that anyone can do. So it, it should be acknowledged and yes. recognised as, as a separate skill. Yes. And, um, yeah, not just sort of dumping on people I take, time. Because yeah. I take on cultural mm. responsibility for you and mm. the group. And so if anything happens to you, it's not, you know, not just an organisational issue. It, it affects my bloodline. Mm. So it's, a, again, the generational approach. Yeah. It's not I've got rights for country, it's obligations. And if I don't fulfil my obligations as a traditional owner or custodian for country, whether that's on country, sea country, sky country, you know, kind of thing, um, hey, it affects my bloodline because you've done you've not treated country the right way, mm. you know. And yeah, it's it's a different concept, but it's a much un- needed important to be an, one. important uh, to, one. To, to to be acknowledged. acknowledged. Yeah. Mm. Another thing that's been in the media recently is the issue of foreign uh, interference and foreign influence. Are you seeing any of that in your community? I think the interesting thing is around the legislation pieces and I can only talk for myself and it's been in the newspapers. So we're getting a lot of a lot of First Nation country is, is being impacted, say, for example, like from mining. And so when we're looking at, you know, registering foreign investment or ownership and that kind of stuff, if we look at the mining sector, for example, during the exploration phase, you don't need to declare it. And so um, if, say, for example, your country is Canberra, Gammon, I'm just pretending, sister, <laughs> if, if your country is, is here and, and, and I'm, you know, I want to do an exploration permit for, I don't know, uranium I'm making, I'm getting very... Uranium in Belgium. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's, that's how we roll. Yeah. Um, so in some states and territories, you can hold your exploration permit for a particular area for, for the first five years. And then you can extend it for 10. So if, for example, you're an exploration company who just happens to have, you know, a number of your board members from countries that were currently not playing nicely with or wanted to be a thing, you suddenly have access to country that you want under an exploration permit. You don't need to declare foreign investment per se until it gets to the mine lease stage. Right. And so 
one of the things I've been trying to sort of educate people around is like, yes, we have a federal government, state government, local government. There's an actual fourth arm of authority and, and, and that kind of stuff, which is our land trust, which is our native title groups, that kind of stuff. So what we're starting to see on country, and I'm only talking for myself, I'm not talking for anybody else. So if I'm a, tr- or if you're the traditional owner sister, I'm the CEO for your land trust. And um, you're saying, hey, I don't like Sister Chelsea as the exploration. I'm chucking you in here, Sister. Um, no one's Sister Chelsea here, you know, like with her exploration company because they're doing the wrong way there. Um, what we're starting to see is people's names being removed from, you know, the corporation register list. If I then want to go to Native Title Tribunal, like you, you want to go to Native, say, hey, my name's been taken off the list. We can't yarn with you because you're PBC, Prescribed Body Corporate, you know, they have to recognise you, you know. Right. And so there's a, it's scary what we're starting to see. So, and this is essentially because some of those mining companies are foreign owned or exploration companies. They start off right. as exploration, exploration. and and yeah. and so and it's not triggering those accountability mechanisms no. in the same and, way. And and again, like I mentioned um, previously, like you know, the second level of exclusion of um, discrimination is exclusion. And so, you know, an exploration company can be really smart and say, "Hey, I want to trigger an EIS," and you think, "Oh, that's lovely. They really care about the environment." No. It just means it's a faster process. They fast track it. And so when they do an environmental impact um, statement or assessment, you know, if if I went to community school, you know, out on country or homeland schooling, I might not be able to understand all the environmental terms. Some of those are 300-page documents. You've only got set timeframes. We don't have scientists to help us break down what them big word, you know, or scientific words are because they're not language that we know. What we know is country. And so even how they set up those um, consultations, they're not really consultations. And this is where United Nations was really clear around the free and prior informed consent. And so that's an interesting term that's playing out as well. So there's another element that's being played out. There's there's issues here that's happening on country. If we're talking around long-range reconnaissance surveillance, we need to be aware of it. And and again, how, where do mob go to to complain? Because the system doesn't recognise them. Some of them may not feel comfortable going to police to report it because really it's outside, you know, state police or territory police's remit. How do they access the ones in the, the federal sort of space? Well, not many federal departments got their shop or offices on country, you know, if I'm talking like Millingimby or Aracoon or, you know, um, you know, other places kind of thing, Matu country. So where do they actually go? Uh, and, yeah. and, again, it's that safety. If I tell my story, I'm telling about myself. I'm, I'm giving a part of myself to you. I'm trusting you with my story. And so, you know, it's caused a lot, a lot of family heartache, yeah. But also when a mine lease is comes into a mine, uh, when an exploration permit goes into a mine lease, one of the other things that people tend to forget is that I have to forego my rights, my native title rights, um, and, it, and what we're starting to see now is some of them will say, oh, it's only for 12 years or 10 years the, during the exploration permit stage. When it gets to mine lease, oh, we've suddenly discovered extra. It, some of them are 50 years. You know, if we talk about the super pits, you know, they're 100 years in operation. Once I don't have access to country to, to do my cultural business, you know, cultural obligations, once the mine finishes, it doesn't automatically come back to traditional owners. You have to formally apply through for the through the High Court. First thing any judge will ask is, "Hey, sister, have you had continued connection to country?" Well, no. <laughs> so, well, then you've got no claim here, and so that's that's the bigger risk. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So the issue of um, how we're managing exploration licenses and some of the accountability around free and informed mm. consent uh, from the relevant peoples is sounds like it's a real issue. Actually, it, it's a big issue. Yeah. And so you look at like some of our federal agencies, um, like ORIC, for example, and others. It's a big challenge for them. They're not really resourced to be able because they've got over three hundred different corporations. And some of that stuff that you need to do is actually it's a specialised gift, especially when you're doing the forensic audit and that kind of thing. Their contract managers 
you know, public servants, they may not have that skill, especially if you're doing financial, because now what we're start, starting to see is trust within trust within trust. So if we're talking foreign interference, you know, hey, there has to be a money trail, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well. yeah. It's in, it's interesting. And, and that's, you know, that's not really my space. It's just it's just what I'm seeing on country myself personally. Yeah. No, I think it's a really important issue. Thanks. Mm. Just to sort of wrap up, um, I'd be really interested in your thoughts about what leadership looks like and how we can understand um, leadership. Mm. So we use a number of different stories. So if we talk about um, crocodile dreaming, uh, you know, wherever the head will go, the body will follow. And so, you know, from a Western lens, we tend to look at leadership as like the lead person or the lead um, part of the organisation, like the group kind of thing. Um, but what we really say, it's that collective knowledge because how long crocodiles been around for? Long time. You know, <laughs> they've got millions of years' worth of knowledge there. And we also use crocodile as a way for when we read country, like especially saltwater country, because if they build their nests high enough, we know, okay, flooding. If, if female crocs come in to, you know, all of a sudden, before they're meant to nest, we know, okay, there's going to be flash flooding coming, you know, those kind of things. If we look at freshwater dreaming, you know, it's understanding, you know, um, the plants. So what happens on country can also tell us what's happening on sea country and it's that connection and what's connecting us, country and water and song and dreaming, you know. Um, so there's that leadership. So that's one story. The other story I like to tell, and even though for those of you that are countrymen out there listening, I'm sorry if I'm using too much saltwater one, but um, this one is a stingray story. So whenever a stingray, and a lot of them, uh, especially if you're freshwater people, they have a little barb on the end of their tail. So whenever they're feeling threatened, the tail will come over the head to protect the head and the body um, to strike. And so what we say, no matter where you are in your family line, or, you know, operational line, the tail protects the head and the body because if it didn't, we'd all be finished, you know. Mm. We'll lay, we finish, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. And so that's interesting because, you know, especially within defence, we're very hierarchical, you know. Um, but what I also say is it doesn't matter, you know, and culture-wise I could have a private or a lance corporal that will have more culture leadership than I would. I acknowledge that. And so, you know, I'll defer to them, but yet hierarchical, hey, um, you, you, Maja, you boss one, you should be leading it. Well, no. And so that's where I talk a lot about that leadership from within. Mm. And I acknowledge that. Doesn't always have to be from the top or the head. It's, yeah, everything's got its, its place. place. Yeah. yeah. Time, place, space. Space. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, I, um, you reminded me of a book I read by two female uh, First Nations astronomers talking about sky country oh. and similar things around mm. understanding um, the movement of space and mm. constellations and what have mm. you based on Dreamtime stories. So um, we've obviously still got um, lots, lots to learn. And I'm really grateful, um, Sister Eileen, that mm. you've um, made time for us to have have a chat today. Mm. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before we finish up? I, I think for anyone listening is this year is going to be a politically charged year. I, I think we also got to understand how trauma plays out. So for a lot of our First Nation mob, you know, this can be a trigger event. And so you're going to see a lot of like polarising views, you know, and, and a lot of pressure, you know, around, hey, we want you to vote yes, we want you to vote no. Um, my answer to that is just create those space, safe spaces for yarning, you know, and also understanding we have a shared journey and it's really important that even our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters, we're part of that same journey now and uh, we all are in this together and we all need to stand strong together. Mm. Yeah. What's that um, beautiful word from the statement from the heart, uh, the coming together after, what's the word? Oh, you're talking like makara makarata. makarata. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so it is around creating those safe spaces. It is also when you create a safe space, you can have those fearless and, you know, yarns, but it doesn't come from a place of harm. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, and if we talk about security, national security, 
there's a real issue here that we, it can be played with. What's interesting is the Samoy people and, you know, overseas, they, their cultural estate covers four countries. Mm. How do they navigate that, especially when one country is being, you know, might be mongrel, you know, don't want to work with it. So they, their option is, well, hey, we'll start negotiating our own trade agreements. Well, what does that really mean? From a security point of view, that could mean, hey, there could be some risk here. But from a self-determination way, I want to take ownership of my own sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely going to be a big year and Australians were not super used to talking about big stuff like constitutional change because we haven't done it Mm. in a while. I think the 1998 referendum was the last first and last referendum I voted in and Mm. of 44 referendums questions put to the country, Mm. you know, only eight have been successful. So I think Mm. that's a really important note Mm. to land on that we're all in this together and to make sure that we um, look out for each other this year because it is, it's going to be a big one and it has bigger consequences for who we are as a people. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think um, like my dad as an immigrant had more rights than my mother. Yeah. Or his children or his grandchildren, now great-grandchildren. Yeah. Um, he's passed now, but that's the legacy. Mm. And so, you know, leading forward, what does that mean truly for us? Mm. And, you know, it's not ancient history. Like I'm 51, that was in my lifetime, mm. you know. And so when we look at like things like COVID and those kind of things, um, again, they were trigger events because bad things happened in missions, reserves. But there was also good things that happened as well, yeah. you know. So it's balancing the good, but it's around creating those safe spaces for yarns to happen. Mm. But it's also understanding, you know, from a trauma lens, you know, rather than saying, what's wrong with these mob? You know, a trauma-informed question would be, what's happened with these mob Mm. for them to behave this way? Yeah. And when you truly unpack it and look at it from a, you know, a, a place of, you know, awareness, Beautiful things can happen, I guess. Yeah, I just I just want the listeners, you know, whoever they are and wherever they are, just to, hey, yeah, it is going to be a very politically charged year. We all need to sort of create, you know, where we can. There's going to be some horrible stuff that comes out, but at the same time it's because mob are trying to figure out what's, what does that mean and sovereignty is going to be key. Um, and, again, we've got mob that are, that are talking, well, what does sovereignty mean? And then if... For those of you that are following the Canada stuff, which is really, really interesting, where they're converting, you know, treaty lands now into municipalities, some people would see that as a loss of self-determination, whereas Canadian governments say, hey, that's self-government, you know. Wordsmithing is a wonderful thing. Yeah, words, words matter. (laughs) (laughs) And so I hope that we all use our words um, kindly uh, this year and I think that's a really um, profound thing that you've said there. It's not what's wrong but what's happened Mm -hmm. Um, because if we can understand each other, that's everything. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Sister. It's been really a privilege to have you here uh, um, and we're really grateful to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Sister. And thank you to the listeners. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.